The following episode of Geeks and Beats contains language or subject matter that may be unsuitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. I'm adding Steve to the conversation right now. Steve, are you with us? I'm here. I'm here. How are you guys? Awesome. Very good. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I love you guys' podcast. Oh, thank you. Oh, that's wow. That's cool. It's always kind of surprising when we hear somebody that actually knows of the podcast. <laughs> well, I listened to one episode this morning. It was the uh, the things that scare you about tech. I thought that was oh. cool. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we had a blast with it. <laughs> so you're all comfortable? You're settled in? Uh, you don't have to worry about moving your uh, iPhone around or anything like that? Yeah, I'm about my plane boards in about 30 minutes, but I think we're good. You, yeah, we're good. You may hear some, uh, you know, some airport announcements, but other than that, we're great. <laughs> no, I think that's absolutely fantastic. It just shows you exactly how far we've come with tech. If you can do something like this um, while you're waiting for a plane. That's great. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's super cool. I love it. All right, here we go. Let's do it. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, simulcast on shortwave radio and Citizens Band 14, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Music fans will soon be able to get a piece of the artist's action. We'll introduce you to Steve Stewart, who after shepherding the Stone Temple Pilots to fame, has turned his attention to Vest. It's a really cool way to make sure your favorite musician gets paid. And get this, you get paid too. Plus, the Bare Naked Ladies reunion on the Juno stage in Vancouver. But not the real Juno stage. That's cool. <laughs> and now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. My daughter was learning to ride a bicycle, and I knew I wanted to capture that moment, so I got myself a GoPro, and I set it up I, on her handlebars, and I got that magic moment as Daddy yes, let go. Required that Daddy Sorry. That's okay. That's okay. I love this. I think this is so cool. Where, which airport are you at? Uh, believe it or not, I'm in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. No, I'm sorry to hear that. Okay. That's rough you know, it's, a, it's the same woman at every airport on the planet. <laughs> she just has that really good enunciation. She lives in a cabin in New Hampshire and records everything on her home studio and then sends it to airports all over the world. She's great. Yeah, exactly. Don't tell me which zone is for stopping and which zone is for loading. Listen, buddy, don't start off with your white zone shit again. Right, I could try to. <laughs> I could see if I can mute this. No, 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 leave it. No, no, this is okay. too fun. Okay. This is yeah. too much right, fun. Let's go for it. Go All for right. it. <laughs> All right, so your daughter's learning how to ride a bike. You want to capture her on a GoPro. Right, and, and, and I get that moment as I let go and she keeps on going and Daddy fades into the distance and I take that video, I bring it into my Mac and I put it all together and of course I have to use this wonderful Enya song with a lovely crescendo as I disappear into the distance and it's perfect. <laughs> Step one, hold on, hold on, east or west, over the 
it on Facebook, and Facebook bans me for a month uploading videos because it was copyrighted content. Sure. Yeah, so now being a fan of Drake or Kanye, Eminem, or I suppose even Enya can turn into cash in your pocket because, of course, it used to be that artists prized holding on to all their rights in order to fully control and receive the royalties for their work. Eminem selling shares of his songs now, Drake and Kanye taking it further. Uh, and so you can actually get that cryptocurrency component uh, to it as well. This is the music industry of the future. Joining us now from an airport in Wyoming is the Stone Temple Pilots, former personal manager and the co-founder of Vets. Steve Stewart joins us on his way to Los Angeles. Great having you with us. Thanks for being with me, guys. I, I appreciate your podcast. It's, it's, it's super, super cool, and I'm so happy to be with you. I, I wonder if you and I have ever run into each other, because I I, I used to do an awful lot of work with SDP, uh, and, and I was with Wyland when he was with uh, English Laundry. Wow. Those were yeah. the days. Yeah, um, yeah. I was with them from 90 to 2000. I grew up with those guys in Orange County. And got them their first record deal in 1990 with Atlantic Records. Made five records with them. Did them maybe, I don't know, 30,000, 30 million units, sorry. Um, and had another 20 bands in the interim. Signed to all different labels, publishers, etc. So I'm pretty familiar with the pain points that artists have in the music industry and you know how the deals are kind of slanted against them. Yeah, and with, with SDP, there were a lot of pain points. But that's another Well, story. yeah, I mean, you know, I can't complain. I, I had a good run with those guys. They're good people. I'm sorry, you know, for Scott's family. And uh, like I said, I've known him since he was 18 years old. So it was something that we all had to deal with for a long time. And sometimes, you know, I, I think you have to separate the art from the artist. And, um, so, and whatever. There's, there's, there's a million stories I could tell you. So what, what exactly is, is Vest? So Vest is a music app, and my partner Robert Menendez and I came up with this about a year ago. We were discussing and lamenting how the record business had really changed and how songs had started to sound much alike. And there wasn't a lot of diversity, and it was like, you know, everything sounds the same because it's the same producers, it's the same three labels that run everything. What's going on here? And we realized that it wasn't a problem with the distribution or the back end about streaming or downloading. It was on the front side. It was how do we get artists to make a living from the craft that they do? And we realized there was only a label deal or a publishing deal for real money. And everybody else is out there scratching in the dirt and shooting in the dark. And there wasn't any type of structure in place to let artists monetize from their fan base on a consistent basis at a real level. So we came up with this concept that allowed artists to put pieces of their songs, not their entire catalog, not for years and years and years, not at any kind of percentage or cost, and make that available to their fan base to purchase, to actually have an ownership stake in the IP itself and the copyright. And we started to realize no one had ever done that before at that level. I mean, music publishers do that with big catalogs. They'll take an entire catalog for seven years, charge 50% of your copyright to supposedly exploit it and supposedly bring you more work. And sometimes that happens. They work probably the top 2 or 3% of their, their catalog, but they don't really touch the other 98%. And I've yet to meet an artist that's very happy with their publishing deal. So we said, why don't we make something like that, but use it in a democratized fashion? And, and we have what's called, um, you know, basically crowdfunded micro-publishing, where we let your fans and anybody else that wants to jump in buy a share of your song. Now, the artist controls the terms. They control how much they want to raise, um, you know, how long they want to have. There's reversion periods of three, five, or ten years. And they also control 
how much of that song they want to put up. So anywhere from 1% to 100%. They don't have to put up anything more than 1% of one song. So it's not a long-term deal that encumbers their entire catalog. It doesn't take a lot of stuff away from them like a typical record deal with the 360 options or a typical publishing deal is. So it was a way for artists to really connect with their fans, for fans to really buy into something in a meaningful way with the artists and songs that they love. That's really interesting. So the fans have a legitimate financial vested interest in in 100 percent wow and we well we thought that turned a typical fan into an advocate right because what are you going to share with your friends a song that you have no interest in or a song that you have a piece of and basically your portfolio becomes your playlist right so whatever you've got on your portfolio you've got say a hundred songs you've bought little pieces of that's your new playlist and that's what you're going to share with your friends and family and, and get those guys into it so the way okay. that you buy into it, you could you can use U.S. dollars. Um, you could put a credit card in or ACH from your bank account. Um, initially, we're going to start with our VZT token. We did a uh, what's called a token generating event and created a token that we have to use on the platform, and that's usable to actually buy song IP. But we know in the long run, ninety nine point nine percent of the people are just going to use a credit card and buy on board, just like you would with you know an iTunes or a Kickstarter. Right. So instead of buying a, a digital download from iTunes for one twenty nine, that you can do whatever you want with that digital file for as long as you are alive, you actually have an ownership stake in the song that you you download. Well, what does that ownership stake mean, though? Like, like, does that mean that if the song is insanely popular, I'm getting a little bit of the action like it would be a stock, like owning shares of Apple computer? Kind of. Um, you are participating in the royalty stream. So you are getting a piece of the income that comes from the, the business that that song generates. Now, it doesn't give you the right to license it or obstruct a license unless you own more than 50% of it. So if an artist says, look, I'm only going to get up 10%, you don't have the right to license, use it, or obstruct your contract. But you do get to share pro rata in the piece that you own. So if the song earns a million dollars and you own 10% of it, you get $100,000. Um, that's that collection mechanism what's through what's called performing rights organizations like ASCAP and BMI in the U.S. and so can in Canada. That's been around for decades. So there's no question that those organizations collect the money. What we do is administer those funds or that percentage of those funds for our investors. So if uh, an artist puts up nine, puts up 10% of his song on our platform, the other 90% that he continues to hold, he collects on the way he always has. We don't touch that or encumber that at all. The 10% that he assigns to us, we get what's called a letter of direction that he signs off on that directs 10% of the income from his publisher or his PRO to us vest and we admin that so we take that 10 percent and then distribute that amongst the investors whether that's one person or a million people we handle the distribution internally all right stock boy has a follow-up question for you here sure if i am if you are giving people the ability to buy shares in any given song and essentially go long on that investment do you give me the ability to sell short the songs I don't like, like maybe I want to buy an entire portfolio of Nickelback, sell it short and cash in on this crappy song. How did I know Nickelback was going to become part of this conversation? <laughs> and, and Chad lives around the corner for me, so I shouldn't say anything bad. But um, you can't look at this as a stock per se. It's not a security. We're basically just selling ownership shares. We can't guarantee whether that's going to earn anything or not. 
but we will tell you that your your ownership stake includes any vested interests and monies that are earned through that saw. Now, can you short something? No, there aren't derivatives in this. Um, what you will be able to do at some point is sell your shares to somebody else. So our, our motto is if you own it, you can sell it, right? So anybody that has a piece of songs or we're going to eventually get into books, TV, film, even patents, anything with an underlying IP, if you have an ownership share, you can sell that. We've had people go, well, I have a label deal. I have a publisher deal. What's left? And I said, well, you have your songwriter shares, right? And they go, oh, yeah. Or even with a publisher, the publisher only owns half of your copyright generally if you're in a publishing deal. And sometimes you can you know, sell the rest of it. So um, other, the other thing that we're doing is finding out that a lot of our interest is coming from producers and co-writers and players, guys that aren't necessarily the star performer on stage, but may have written 50% of the song. So it lets them have a shot at monetizing the song in a way that they couldn't before. Okay, wait a second. We talk about songs that are co-written, for example. Can you buy just a the a portion of the song, like the like let's say the Jagger Richards, for example? Can you buy Keith's IP in the song, or do you have to buy the song as a whole? No, no. You can buy anybody who has an ownership stake that puts it up on our platform. So we had a, a Drake song, for example, right? It wasn't from Drake himself, but it was from a guy that wrote 50% of the Drake song who was a co-writer, and he was able to put up his shares on our platform and make them available. So anybody, a producer, a co-writer, a lyricist, a performer, anybody that has points or pieces of that song now can monetize those. This sounds like a legitimate source sort of, of situation like we had back in the 1950s when you would have somebody like Dick Clark or Alan Freed put their name on a record so they would get a piece of the action in exchange for, for playing it on the radio or, or whatever it was. In this particular case, you become sort of a silent partner where um, you are going to sell me an X percentage of your song. I don't appear in the credits anywhere, but I have a piece of the publishing so that when the royalty checks come in as a result of airplay and you know any kind of performance rights, I, I get some action. That's exactly right. What we're finding is that 80% of our buyers are going to be kids between 13 and 20 year old. Why? They're just, well, they're the music fans, right? Who are your busy, bis, biggest music fans? You're, you're talking to old man across there. Come on. No, no, no. I'm just saying that this is a pretty sophisticated thing. Like if I'm a thir- like if I was 13 years old, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to invest in a publishing portfolio by buying shares of my favorite artist songs. They're going to look at it like I want to own anything that, you know, Ariana Grande puts out, whether it's a T-shirt, a concert ticket, an album, a download, they're going to want to buy into everything they can. Okay. So our platform lets you get in from anywhere from $5 to a million dollars, right? You can buy it like you're buying a Bitcoin. It's not a share that's priced at a certain price point. It's anything you want to put in, you get a pro rata fraction of ownership. So a 13-year-old that wants to put $5 in or $10 in can do that all day long. Her parents, you know, put a, put a credit card in and she just ranks up whatever ownership she wants. But we think because music fans love music in that way, and they want to share what they own. And this whole this is a Venmo generation, right? I mean, I'm not really interested in putting up my lunch money. It's just let people know what I split my lunch with. But there's a lot of people that participate in Venmo showing you who they split their lunch bill with. But while I know that it's not exactly a, a clean metaphor of using stocks, what, though, of the idea of the initial public offering, an initial music offering, using it as a means of raising the money <laughs> to produce a song? Right. So we have something called an ISO, which we trademarked. It's called an initial song offering. Falls right into what you're talking about. Um, it is the uh, opportunity to put a song up a particular t- at a particular time or date and saying, like, next Thursday at noon, I'm making available 10% of my song. And we know that just like with certain tr- ticket on sales, some artists will sell out very quickly, right? Five, 10 minutes. Some artists will sit out there for a week or, or a month even. 
But we want to have a particular point in time that puts the flag on the ground and says, look, this is the point I can focus my social media, I can focus my promotion and marketing at. I know that at noon on Wednesday, my song's going up. I'm going to get everybody to come in and buy it. So it's called an initial song offering, and we're taking advantage of the opportunity to actually stack social media. So our hope is to have, you know, 100 or 1,000 of these a day coming up. And if you have a particular artist or genre that you like, you can partake in any one of those. So it's not a matter of, uh, I'm thinking about writing this song. It's going to cost money to produce. Let's use this ISO as a means of raising the funds necessary to produce it. You're, you're only talking about existing tracks. Correct. Because of security issues and just logic, we have to have songs are already recorded and completed. They don't have to be released necessarily, but they have to be a completed song. Okay, how much? How much does it cost to subscribe to uh, a piece of this ownership? Uh, it's up to the artist, but again, you can put in anywhere from five to a million dollars. So if, if, if you know an artist said, look, I'm going to put up 10% of my song for $100,000, you can put in $5. You could put in $100. Depends on how much of that song you want ownership of. So that's why I'm saying that 80% of the audience will probably be younger and music-oriented and less worried about an ROI or the actual royalties, right? Someone that has $10 and is not going to be concerned about earning huge royalties on their $10 investment. Now, the other 20% of investors, we think, will be people that can actually be market makers. So they might be producers, they might be music supervisors, brands, people in the industry that know, wow, if I buy 50% of the song and I put it in my commercial, I'm a Coca-Cola guy, got a national spot that's running next week, and I have ownership of that song, or I'm a music supervisor for Warner Brothers, and I've got a movie coming out this Christmas, I need an end title song, I'm going to put this in, and we're going to own a share of this. There's going to be guys that are looking for the ROI, looking to be able to make and exploit that music to the point where they're going to benefit from having that ownership stake. Okay, I missed out on the entire Bitcoin revolution, so I'm not making any money no, from this. <laughs> Believe me. Trust me, it crashed. You can get right back I, in again. Yeah. Um, right. Now, I, I'm looking for the next big thing to help pay off my mortgage. Maybe maybe what I need to do is, is, is start investing in all these individual songs, creating a portfolio. But does that value grow? I think that's what your ultimate point is, is if I buy a piece of a song, is the value of that going to increase that gives me the ability to sell it down the road? Or again, are you running afoul of the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission and at risk of a perp walk if you do that? Well, there's no guarantee. But what I will say is that music value is based on cumulative spins or downloads, right? So it doesn't go backwards. The song will not be worth less. It just won't earn as much. Every spin, every stream, every download increases the value you know, incrementally. The thing we're, we're noticing, though, we're, we're dealing with some K-pop artists right now, and those fans are rabid. The Korean fan base is crazy, and what they do over there is they will chart an artist. They'll take an artist's album, 12 songs, and they will start to spin it or download it enough that it actually charts 1 through 12 on the charts. They don't care. They don't care about the money. They don't care about anything other than that's their favorite artist and they're rapidly going to support them. So what we're thinking is, you know, if we have an artist here, maybe they put out, you know, they're trying to raise 100,000 bucks. They go out to a, a, ma a fan base of 10 million. They get, you know, uh, a 10% traction. So a million people come on. That million people 
equates to a million streams or a million downloads, right? If they How? share it with 10 people, that's 10 million downloads. That alone is going to boost the value of that song because it's going to earn more royalties because of those streams and downloads. And you own these songs, these song shares in perpetuity. How are they paid, paid out? How, how do I get my money out? We, we pay all of the buyers through our platform. You'll have an account with us. And then, like I said before, we administer all the funds that come in. So whether it's coming from the publisher or a PRO or even a label, we take those monies in and we distribute them pro rata to whoever bought in on our is side. It, is it a check or is it a PayPal? Is it a credit card uh, credit? What is it? Uh, we can do an ACH back to your bank or we can put it in your account. You could take it out as U.S. dollars or you could take it out as tokens. I mean, whatever whatever fashion you want to have it come in or out at. Okay, I... I- I, I'm so I, I got to get in on this. Um, how? Okay. How, do artists sign up for this, or or how many artists do you have signed up? We have. Uh, I would say as brand ambassadors, we've signed up about 30 in the last two to three weeks. I mean, I, I'm seeing like four or five a week that are coming into our office and are very interested. That includes producers, co-writers, artists, everybody associated. Um, we've got a couple of publishers, um, one with about 10,000 10, songs and one with about 100,000 songs because the publishers are realizing this is a retail play, but they've never had a consumer play before. They're usually a B2B business selling to brands and to movie companies and TV companies. But to be able to sell the value of their song to the general public, it's just like what happened with the financial markets in the U.S. in the late 80s, right? Before Charles Schwab and E-Trade, you couldn't buy one single share of IBM unless you were a accredited investor and had $250,000 in an account. You'd have to buy a bundle of stock. But now you're able to, through you know, mobile apps like Robinhood and others, you can buy one share of Apple right from your cell phone at an airport. So okay. our hope is to democratize the music publishing business, let fans connect with the artists in a meaningful way. By the way, we're also sharing the information. So every artist will know who the buyers are. Believe it or not, labels don't do that. iTunes doesn't do that. Spotify doesn't do that. So you may have a lot of streams or downloads or people that are buying your CD, but those people will never tell you or let you have the contact information of those customers. We will for free. Okay, I'm looking at the Join the ISO for uh, It's All on Me featuring BJ the Chicago Kid and Justice as recorded by uh, Dr. Dre. So it's an ISO that gives you the opportunity to own a piece of the song uh, produced by Dr. Dre and Bink. Uh, upon participating in this ISO, you will get fractional ownership of this track and you will receive royalties as they are collected and paid out. So, uh, okay, the total ISO raises three, three, $3,500. And you have a... Uh, VZT spot price, which is $1 equals 10.87 VZT. What does that mean? So VZT is our token. Again, when we did a token raise, um, we had to use a actual token and create a token. And at this point, we're only allowing VZT tokens to transact on these particular ISOs. And as we get closer to our beta launch at the end of April, we're going to allow US dollars. So at this point, it's for token holders only. But anybody that participated in that token generating event is holding VZT tokens. That spot price is a conversion from what they paid to what it's worth today on a dollar by dollar basis. Got it. And then we translate that into the value for the song. Okay, I've I've signed up here. I'm uh, I'm in. I, I want to create a portfolio. I love it. I, I think this is going to be really <laughs> cool because I suck at trading stocks. I might be able to make a little bit of money by speculating in music. Steve, we know that you've got to catch that flight from Wyoming back to Los Angeles. So we only have one question left for you as you get on that plane. Sure. Have you ever been in a cockpit before? I am actually a pilot, so I have many, many times. Oh, you blew my airplane <laughs> joke. Question number two. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? <laughs> Do you want me to check the weather, Clarence? No, why don't you take care of it? Joey. 
Great having you with us. Thank you so much for your time. I love you guys. Stay in touch. I look forward to talking to you soon. Steve Stewart is the Stone Temple Pilots' former personal manager and the co-founder of Vest. Thanks, guys. Ever wanted to be a big shot co-producer? It's just like Hollywood. Visit geeksandbeats.com to learn how you can pad your resume with an exciting show credit. We'll even send you the album cover of your episode, suitable for framing in your parents' basement. So while you were there hobnobbing at the Junos on the red carpet, the Geeks and Beats team on Twitter was having a G&B Junos party. I saw that. Hashtag G&B Junos, no G&B less. G&B Junos, yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, here's an interesting thing. I was actually covering the Junos for uh, Vintage TV, which if you have Shaw Cable or Rogers Cable, you can see. I was on the red carpet, and I was also in the uh, media room for the gala on the Saturday night and also for the um, award ceremony itself on the Sunday night. Here's something that a lot of people don't realize. When we went into this lockdown in this media room before both the gala and before the broadcast on Sunday night, we had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. We had to surrender our phones and we were given the winners in advance. Awesome. I knew everybody who was I knew all the winners in advance uh, before for anybody else. Right. And the point being is that it gives you the ability to prep your questions and who you want to talk to and, and do your research. Yeah, I thought that was really kind of cool. One of the uh, the most popular musicians on the big show, uh, according to the team here, was the artist Lights. Uh, delivered an electric performance. Well, we could be trapped, bigger than the wall they hide us, breaking all the Oh, she was really good. In fact, I'm going to go as far as to say that the Juno broadcast that we saw on Sunday night was the best Juno broadcast perhaps in the 43 years that they've been doing these things. I think they did a very good job. What did you think of Sarah Harmer, Kevin Hearn, and Dallas Green with that Gord Downey tribute? I left her house this morning it was appropriately somber. I thought it was appropriately celebratory. I thought it was appropriately appropriate. I thought it was it was very good. They they had to do it. It wasn't going to be a, a joyful thing because, you know, celebrating the death of a human being is, is never is. But um, I thought they did an excellent job. I suppose not celebrating the death as much as celebrating the life and his contribution to music. Yeah. Uh, meantime, uh, Bare Naked Ladies um, brought Stephen Page back from the dead, as it were, and uh, did that big uh, inductee show. If I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, I'd buy you 
were a house, well, I would buy you a house. And if I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, buy you furniture for your house, maybe a nice Chesterfield or an Ottoman. If I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, well, I'd buy you a cake car, a nice Ferrari and automobile. If I had a million dollars, I'd buy your love. I talked to them on the red carpet uh, on their way in, and it was rather interesting because for me and these guys, it kind of closed the loop on their career because back in 1989, 1990, uh, when I was working at CFNY, what, well, I still am, but when it was called CFNY, the bare naked ladies were in their busking phase and they would often show up in at the radio station uninvited, uh, unasked, and perform in the lobby for, for the staff. And, it, you know, it was like, get out of my way. I want to go for lunch. Uh, stepping over Stephen and Ed and and and, uh, and Tyler and, and and Kevin and everybody, uh, so to talk to them on on Sunday on the red carpet was kind of cool. Cool because I remember you know get out of my way uh, as well as, and it was cool to be there when they were being inducted into the Rock and Roll or the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. I wonder if they've gotten past that whole Stephen Page, you know, speedball nonsense that oh, yeah. blew up that entire band uh, in a very big way. Because as I figured it, what had happened was they they had gotten older, they had families, they opted instead to uh, sort of change tact, and, and they put out that children's album, which my daughter at the time absolutely adored, and with the Disney relationship that they were building, that looked like their next phase of their career in a puddle by the trail lips its tiny tail just like a great big whale but smaller than a snail it's a polywog in a bar swims under soggy logs one day you'll be a frog polywog in a bar and then, you know, the whole thing falling apart with Stephen Page derailed all of that. And I can imagine that must have created a tremendous amount of tension that ultimately, of course, led to him leaving the band. It, it did. It created all kinds of tension. There was a period of estrangement. Uh, he, Stephen, had all kinds of problems uh, himself, personal issues. But uh, it was nice to see them all back together. They have put all that stuff behind. And uh, we're very gracious. I talked to people who were involved in the rehearsals and the negotiations and everything that led up to what we saw on Sunday night. And uh, there was uh, it, it all worked out really well. In fact, on the way back on Monday, I was in the Air Canada Lounge in Vancouver at the airport and I ran into Ed Robertson. I said, that was really, really cool. You know, there was, I think, a tear in everybody's eye when we saw you guys get together doing uh, If I Had a Million Dollars one more time. Everybody seemed to be having a really good time. Then I ran into Tyler, uh, who was on my flight, and I said the same thing to him. He says, yeah, you know what? It was, it was really, really nice to go back for just a few minutes and remember what it was like. They're never going to go back and do what they were doing again. I mean, they can't because that was of it era of a time everybody has moved on but it certainly was nice to remember uh the Mary naked ladies at their at their peak or at least at that peak back in the 1990s london bangkok new york cincinnati from the worldwide headquarters of geeks and beats magazine 
This is a GNB News Update. We have a new member of the world's worst intern program. Excellent. Yep, and of course you know why it's called the World's Worst Intern Program. You pay us $1 to work on the show. You don't do any actual work. And all we do is say thank you and pocket the cash. Takara Kozakura pledged a dollar on the program, so thank you very much for joining us on that. We recently had Aaron Nicholas, Sebastian Van Niekirk, and Dan Lynch join us too. And Lisa Malia kicked off uh, the month of March with a contribution as well. If you go to geeksandbeats.com, you can click the support the show link. You can support us on Patreon. Some people don't like that. Uh, so you can just send us uh, cash via our PayPal link as well. And all the money gets plowed right back into the show. You can? You can just send money directly to Patreon, uh, to, to PayPal? We're in the process of trying to figure out how we get in on Bitcoin while we're at it. I was in a bar in Vancouver and I saw a Bitcoin machine and uh, it was the Honey Badger Bitcoin machine. Oh, you, you know why? Yeah, I know why. The Honey Badger has been referred to by the Guinness Book of World Records as the most fearless animal in all of the animal kingdom. It really doesn't give a shit. If it's hungry, it's hungry. Ew, what's that in its mouth? Oh, by the way, you're not, uh, we're not doing a show next week. No, we're not, because I'm in, in Singapore. You're in Singapore. Uh, you are going to help a friend with some sort of relationship problem, and you are bringing a female companion with you. I am bringing the witch, the relationship witch. This woman knows more about navigating and stick handling through tricky relationships than anybody I know. So, yes, we are on a mission of mercy. And, and wifey's okay with this. And so is her husband. What a wacky world we live in these days. It just shows how much my wife loves me, how much she trusts me, and how much she thinks I'm just too stupid to do anything bad. <laughs> Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.